0: This is the People in Their Work podcast. I am Professor Doug Gardner in the Student Leadership and Success Studies department at Utah Valley University. In this podcast, you will hear the first-person stories of people journeying through their education, work, and career decision-making. Brent Edgington retired after 36 years working as a hospital administrator. A week after his retirement, he shared several stories about what made his work meaningful, what he did to prepare for retirement, and how he will continue to live a meaningful life. Hint, meaning for Brent has a lot to do with relationships. Uh, my name's Brent Edgington. I just retired a week ago from Utah Valley Hospital, where I had worked for 36-plus years. Worked in various departments there. I managed uh, well, probably a half dozen of them, or maybe even more than that, over the years. And have been with Intermountain for... From the onset of my career, I, I had no idea I would be there that long. Had no idea it would be less than that either. I didn't. I didn't really know. But they offered me a job, and and I was thrilled to take it. And uh, my wife and I grew up. Well, I grew up in Idaho. My wife grew up in St. George, Utah, and so we were about halfway in between, right here uh, in Provo. Met at BYU, and and uh, it's been an ideal fit for us. Uh, She teaches dance part-time at BYU. Uh, She teaches ballroom dance. Marcy Edgington, any of you that are involved in ballroom dance, I'm sure would be acquainted with her. We were actually offered jobs the same day, back in April of 1985. She's there for one more year and planning to retire sometime next summer. Uh, She wanted to make the transition a little smoother, and there were some factors in their department that made it helpful if she stuck around a little longer, and so she did. But I just retired and and had a very enjoyable career. Started working there, like I said, I I did an internship. Started in, actually, 1984. Did an internship there in what they called the Wellness Center, which we had an administrator that was a very health-oriented individual, and he wanted to start this program where we would take care of our employees. We would do different tests on them, cholesterol tests, body composition testing, blood pressure, blood sugars, all those kinds of things, just trying to determine their health, realizing that if people were taken care of, they were probably going to be better employees, and they wouldn't miss work as often, and those kinds of things. So they started this program back then and asked me if I would would head that up. It wasn't too long after that. We started a cardiac rehab program. We had a cardiologist that wanted to come here, but he didn't want to come here if he couldn't have a cardiac rehab program. He said, my patients, I want them to get better. They don't get better if they don't have a rehab program. So we started a cardiac rehab program back in 1986. I still remember the very first patient. The first day, we had two patients. Uh, one of them was a, a lady that was in her late 30s that had had some heart ailments. And another one was a gentleman that was 84 years old who uh, had some uh, some heart challenges as well. He passed away several years ago. But we had a delightful time doing that. And, and the biggest thing that happened from that is we would actually, they would come in, and we would visit with them. We'd take their vitals, and, and then they'd go to work on a treadmill or on a bike, whatever worked best for them, and we would get their heart levels up to certain levels, and, and we were they were being monitored all the while that was happening. But we were almost became just kind of a, a consultant, if you would, to, to talk to them so the time passed faster while they were exercising and figuring things out. And, and uh, as a result of that, they would get better quite a bit quicker. And so we'd push them to certain levels, and there were certain things you had to watch for and we would do all of those things, but that's kind of that's how my career started back in 1985, 86. We had what they called a, a, the Roger and Sybil Ferguson Wellness Institute, and it was a small facility that had previously been a doctor's office, and the Fergusons actually donated some money. Uh, they founded the diet centers in Rexburg, Idaho, and they had donated some money to Utah Valley Hospital for this purpose, to help people get better. And it was a very sweet experience. That's where we started this facility. Now, in that facility, we had a half dozen treadmills, about that many bikes, some weight machines, locker room showers, a few things like that. There wasn't much there. However, we did have, and I'm I, I'll go to my grave stating this, that we did have, I'm confident, Utah County's first pickleball court. I don't think it was designed as a pickleball court, but it was a, a court that had lines painted on it that are actually exactly to a pickleball sized court. And we had a gentleman, we only knew that because we had a gentleman that worked in dietary that had family up in Washington, and he would bring back, he, he went up there to play, well he went up to visit family and came back with paddles and and everything you need to play pickleball. And so we used to play pickleball there. In time, we moved into a bigger facility. That went away. Uh, and now, interestingly, about a block and a house, half from my home, uh, Provo's putting in some pickleball courts. And pickleball's an awesome little game. We also had a basketball court out there, and, and, and you could hit across a tennis net. Uh, the court wasn't big enough to really play tennis on, but, but kind of a fun little history there. But it was designed to help employees uh, stay healthy. It's what it was designed for originally. Um, we made some some. Uh, one of our first administrators the first administrator when I was there was a gentleman by the name of Mark Howard, uh, who still lives here in the county. And I say still lives; he's moved. He, he was a left intermountain after several years and went to Las Vegas and had a highly successful career down there. Uh, wonderful gentleman. It wasn't uncommon when Mark was a very very busy guy. You you wouldn't go to the hospital almost any time without Mark being around. Uh, On Monday afternoons at about 4 o'clock he would meet with the chairman of the board, a gentleman by the name of Merrill Gapmeyer, and they would play racquetball uh, over at the Provo Rec Center near Provo High School. They would go over there and there, there was a couple other administrators that would go with them and they'd usually play doubles racquetball court. If they only had three of them or if someone was in meetings it wasn't uncommon that they would call me and invite me to come play with them. And being a loyal employee, I wanted to accommodate them, especially if it was playing racquetball or on the golf course. And so I would go over and play racquetball with them and got to know them fairly well. But Mark kind of had the philosophy, and like I said, he was an exceptional leader. But his philosophy was, if I take a week off of work, nobody even knows. But he says, if a housekeeper doesn't show up to work, then the place could close up. He, It was literally, and he treated every employee that way, That, that he was very grateful to have them, and they were grateful for him. He would round probably at least a couple times a week uh, at night. And when I say at night, I'm not just talking eight or nine at night. He would come in at 1 or 2 in the morning and see how they were doing. Uh, learned a lot from, from him, and he was, he was awesome. Mark used to say when his secretary was wise enough that when Mark was playing racquetball, she would say, he's in a meeting with the chairman of the board, which he was. They were meeting on the racquetball court, but they were in a meeting. And when he was out running, which he did quite often as well, she would say, he's meeting with the doctor, because his doctor had told him he needed to take up running. (laughs) So he was was doing those kinds of things and and was awesome at it. Intermountain Healthcare has a, a system of several hospitals. Down here in Utah County, it was Orm Community Hospital, which opened, gosh maybe just a year or two before I actually came in the early 80s Uh, and then American Fork Hospital, which had been open for quite a while. But in the process of all this, we got involved in different races and things we had for employees. They used to have a race where you would race against the administrator of the hospital and it it was for employees. Well, it was actually for anybody that wanted to come, but we would get between maybe 150 and 300 people that would come, and everyone that beat the administrator received a free pair of movie tickets. That was just part of the race. It was kind of what we did. To begin with, Craig Smedley was the administrator when I started working out there, and so we'd, we'd hold what they called the Craig Classic. Years later, when Craig had left, they ran what they called the Keith Classic, when Keith Alexander was the administrator. That was kind of easy, because Craig and Keith both go with Classic. Mike came in as the administrator and they changed it to Mike's Mad Dash. That race, through an administrator we had at Utah Valley Hospital by the name of Kevin Brooks, that race has now evolved into what they call the American Fork Canyon Run Against Cancer. The, the last time they ran it, I think it was around 4,500 entrants, and it was a half marathon from up Tibble Fork Canyon down to, it finished uh, at Art Dye Park in American Fork, not too far from the hospital, but a little ways away, and they would raise money, and all the proceeds from that would go to, to cancer research. So just some fun things with that. It was interesting to me, though, as I, you know, we I would do this these little runs the, you know, Keith Classic, Craig Classic, Mike's Mad Dash, and we'd get, you know, two or three hundred people and feel good about it and pat ourselves on the back and well done. And then Kevin Brooks, one of our administrators at Utah Valley Hospital, uh, who was an assistant administrator at one point, became the administrator later. He came in and said, I think this can become much bigger. And that's where we started that. Now, he had a different vision than I had by a long, long way. I I couldn't even imagine what he did. I mean, in terms of you know, they'd have to get 60 buses to haul everybody up the canyon and make it all happen. He had a very different vision than I did, and I'm grateful that he was in a position to do what he did versus me being in the position doing what I did, because I'm confident I wouldn't have felt confident going about doing what he was doing uh, in the position that I was in. But as an administrator backing it, uh, it was a very nice thing to do. In the late 80s, we actually started an Optifast program. I most of you probably would have never heard of that, but Back in the late 80s, Oprah Winfrey lost a lot of weight on a program called Optifast. It was a program that entailed uh, just drinking protein shakes. It would be a, minimum of, or a maximum of about 800 calories a, a day that someone would ingest, and, and they found some pretty good success with that. Uh, once Oprah Winfrey did it and became, it became famous, Virtually all the hospitals started it up. They would come in and see a a doctor, make sure everything was okay. They'd see a doctor on a weekly basis. The biggest help, I think, was probably the therapy sessions that they would go into. Uh, They'd go in with a therapist and and try to figure out, how am I doing, what am I doing? And and this wasn't an individual therapy. This was a group therapy of probably uh, anywhere from 10 to 15 patients that they would meet with, and they'd discuss things, and how are we doing, that sort of stuff. So that that happened then. Then my family came along. had a son in 1987. My wife and I lived in a little one-bedroom apartment. uh, Address was 721 West Center Street in Provo. I just drove by it the other day. It was a very small place. I dare say it wasn't more than about 400 square feet, maybe at max. Uh, But we lived there for the first year of our marriage, and it was awesome. Uh, We then moved up to Orm to a little two-bedroom apartment. That's where we had our first child, whose name is Tanner. Uh, Tanner is now 34 years old and was born... Well, we didn't know this when he was born, but three of my four children have learning disabilities. It's called Fragile X Syndrome, which we'd never heard of, and I don't think they really even kind of discovered it until maybe early 90s, but it's a genetic disorder that comes from my wife's grandfather uh, that we didn't know about that makes... It's kind of like they say, almost like having a broken record. It just continues to repeat things, and so there are certain things that they can't pick up on. Uh, they just don't click in their mind. And so uh, anyway, we, we ended up, the things became more important to us than money, I guess, and, and, and prestige and all that sort of stuff. Long story short, uh, about a month before we had our, our next child, wh- whose name is Allie, uh, we ended up moving into a new home. And, and the, it was built in the Grandview area. Uh, we, we actually had a lot up in Orm, not far from University Mall. Uh, but they required that their builder build it if we built it up there and we already had a builder who happened to be a friend of ours from the the neighborhood that we were in before where we had the two-bedroom apartment he was going to build it and he was a school teacher by day taught junior high I want to say out in American Fork would go to work and and build and he was great at that sort of thing so anyway he we contracted with him he built us a home there on Grandview Hill interestingly just this morning I was visiting with some people, some neighbors of mine, and they were talking about someone selling a home for $450,000. And the guy piped in and he said, I bought mine for $60,000. And the lady sitting next to him said, I bought mine for 30 dollars <laughs> and, and I just remember being very excited when we found out our interest rate. We, we locked in at just the perfect timing in November of an election year. And because of that, we got our interest, we got a very good interest rate, which at the time was 11 and 3 8 percent. And we were thrilled to get that. Well, needless to say, several years later, that changed. The rates came down. When they dropped down, we refinance it. We refinanced, I guess when we refinanced it, we probably started over again with the 30 years. But we just kept paying the same thing that we'd been paying all along. Long story short, uh, you know, then it dropped to five. We refinanced again. Then it dropped to four, and we did it again. Long story short, it took us about 20 years to pay off our 30-year mortgage. Uh, But it was, like I said, we started out with a very high interest rate. But I remember as a child seeing interest rates up in the 18%. And so I was... I was thinking we were doing pretty good by getting in at only 11 of three-eighths. After we'd been there about three years, we had twin daughters. They both actually had Fragile X as well. Our daughter, Allie, does not have that. She's a very gifted, very sweet girl. Anyone that knows her would say, yeah, she's salt of the earth. And I think part of that's probably because she has three siblings with disability. Because of that, what became important to us was not how much could we make or what kind of prestige could we acquire. It was really more, can we be happy? And, and how do we do that? And we found that the schools here in Provo were awesome, uh, particularly with our children and their disabilities. And so you know, I was five minutes from work. My wife was maybe six or seven minutes from work. We, we really had a, a really ideal situation. Uh, my wife likes to dance. She chose to work. She didn't have to work. She chose to, and, and still continues to choose to do that. Our daughter and her husband uh, were actually uh, finalists in the professional smooth. U.S. championships, uh, very gifted dancers. And interestingly, now my daughter's starting to teach a little bit at BYU. Uh, her good husband, who's also a very gifted dancer, has chosen to do other work that he finished school with, and so he's just in the last few months decided that he's he's going to work for a, a construction outfit uh, and, and work as a supervisor in home building and that sort of thing. The the main reason that he's decided to do that as opposed to teaching dance is he said, I. They have two little children, my two grandchildren. He says, I don't want to be leaving when the kids are coming home from school. And so he's decided that he's going to do something different, uh, and and they're doing very well with that. When we got married, I was 25, and my wife was just uh, about a week shy of being 24. And interestingly, I'd seen her at school, and I'd I'd walk by, and I see this lady in there teaching a dance class. I didn't know what class it was, but I figured it was jazz or something along those lines because of the way they dressed. And I thought, wow, there's there's a cute lady. I wonder who she is. And so I became an associate of a lady who was a secretary in in the College of Physical Education at BYU, and they said, oh, her name's Marcy Hafen. And I asked the secretary, I said, ask if she's married. And she, she looked at me with a stern look and then finished her conversation on the phone. She, came, she says, I'm not asking if she's married. That's your job, not mine. Uh, anyway, long story short, at that point, I knew her name. And so I asked uh, my my home evening sisters who were ballroom dancers if they happened to know a dancer by the name of Marcy Hafen. And they said, Yeah, she's on the on the ballroom touring company with us. And so long story short, they set us up. That was in our first date was in October of nineteen eighty-three. And I remembered it, it was October twenty second because that happens to be my folks' anniversary. Uh, and how I did this, I don't know. I took her to a Salt Lake hockey game, the triple A team. I I don't know that I had been before and I don't know that I've been since, but somehow we went to that. Had a delightful time. I really liked her. I still remember very vividly. I was smart enough. I grew up in a little town in Idaho, but my mom had kind of taught me a little bit about dating. I remember thinking, you need to ask. If I wanted to go out with her again, I couldn't ask for Friday night or Saturday night, because if she had something going, she could just say, oh, I can't. And I wouldn't know if she wanted to go or not. And so I, I was smart enough to say, would you like to do something next weekend? And I was so disheartened when she said, oh, I can't. <laughs> I thought, you don't even know when I'm talking about. I give you the entire weekend and you just told me no. And then what she told me was really uh, some of the sweetest words I've ever heard. She said, I'm actually going to California on Saturday to a dance competition, but I could do something Thursday night or Sunday night. Uh, after we get back and I said let's do something Thursday and and it was around Halloween and so we went to some haunted house or something I went down to her after Christmas I went down to meet her family and we were married the following August uh, while I was home in Idaho working during the summer and she was on tour with the Ballroom Dance Company for six weeks in, I believe it was China that year, uh, or the Orient anyway. I fell in love with her and she was willing to help me along the path and so that's kind of how our story met. I went to Rick's College for two years, a year before my mission and a year after my mission and then came down here to BYU, and, and my oldest brother, he, he graduated in exercise science, and, and said, hey, you might want to consider this, and th- the professors liked him, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll try that, I, don't, I didn't have anything in mind. That was back before computers were really even a, a thing, decided to go into that, and so I was doing working on a graduate degree in health sciences when my wife and I met. Uh, she was, happened to be uh, teaching dance, uh, she was a student, teacher is what she was. She wasn't faculty at that point, And then she became adjunct faculty and has been that ever since. But it was simply that it, it seemed to work for us. We've been fine financially in a lot of the world standards. We, people probably say, how can you do that? But we didn't, you know, we I don't think we ever wanted for much. Uh, part of that's we kind of, my wife and I came from very similar backgrounds where we didn't need a lot either. Uh, we, we just were kind of You know, it was a pretty darn good fit. And then I think our children and their disabilities have helped us to realize that, you know, the important things in life are are not how many things you have, it's the things you do and and the people you're around with. In terms of did you have a career path, I think, you know, I, I graduated with people that went off to Lots of different states to you know go work at this place or that place. Uh, Utah Valley Hospital, interestingly, I, my boss was actually the human resource director. One thing I really appreciated, one time he had me go in there to present to the administrative council some presentation that we were doing. And not a presentation, but a proposal that we wanted to do something, and he wanted me to kind of sell it to the administrators. And so I went into this meeting. and But before we got to that point, it was interesting to watch the human resources director there fighting tooth and nail, who happened to be my boss, Ken Walker, who's a man I think the world of, fight tooth and nail for employee benefits. He wanted this, he wanted that. And, and then I'd see the CFO, Rod Lesenby, another man I think very highly of, who was the CFO, arguing why they couldn't do that. And I thought, this is a perfect, this is how it should be. Here's. The HR guy fighting for benefits. Here's the finance guy fighting for finances. And and they're both doing what they should be doing. Several years after that, I guess, uh, maybe 10 years after that, they made some changes. Ken retired, and, and they brought in someone from Human Resources that was brought in more or less to kind of, I think, get us more in line with what the rest of the system was doing. But I remember thinking, oh, that's that's unfortunate that human resources doesn't have a real advocate for them now, for the employees. In a system that big, as big as Intermountain Healthcare is now, I think there's 40 plus thousand employees, you can't do it the way that it used to be done and be successful with it. It, You know, you just can't. Uh, so I understand why those things changed. But those that's one of the reasons we call those the good old days. Uh, it was back when. If I'm not mistaken, if you'd worked there 35 years, they would send you on a cruise, you and your spouse. You know, that was just out of their budget, I guess. There weren't many people back then that were doing that. Now there's a lot of them that are retiring with that kind of experience. So, you know, I understand the reasons why they've changed, but it uh, it's, it's it's been an interesting ride seeing that. But in the, being the human resource director, he used to ask us to. Uh, We would have to help with new employee orientation, which they would have a weekly basis. I I was part of that because I worked for him, and he could tell me what to do. And so we would go in, and we'd welcome employees and talk to them about why we do this, and why we do that, and how we do this, and how we do that, and all those kinds of things. And it was always a very fun experience. As part of this, they would have a little video. The the process of that, uh, they had me play like I was Jay Leno. and, and, and so we would go out and interview employees about this and that and talk about why you don't stick your arm into an elevator door that's closing. And they do the, you know, with the photography, they could make it look like a guy stuck his arm through there and then show him again and he's missing his right arm, that sort of stuff. They used to do some fun stuff like that. Uh, back when we were a smaller department, smaller area. But in the process of all that, I ended up being asked to head up Intermountain University, which is our educational department there. And so I did that for several years. And they they felt like they needed a nurse to do that. And so they asked me to work with IV therapy. And IV therapy, you're really working with, you know, it's nurses working directly with patients who need IV therapy on a quite often... You know two, three times a week or every few months. It, it just varied based on the patient, but working with nurses and so I, they asked me to do that. Uh, that was really, I think in part, I think it was more of a we want someone to kind of represent them as a manager, not necessarily you know anything about it. They need a manager and they had a supervisor and they said, we need someone to be the manager. Would you help take that on as well? And so I, I took that on, uh, which was fun. Uh, in fact, I just the same day I retired, two of those employees, uh, that had both been with Intermountain. One of them 39 years, the other one 32 just retired. Uh, they also asked at one point if I would take over the diabetes management clinic uh, as as the manager. That, that's a department that, you know, had been around for a long time, 20-plus years, and and was really kind of had plenty of people doing it. They just needed a manager. And I say needed a manager. That's probably a stretch. But the the supervisor they had uh, was very clinically involved with a lot of the patients. And so he was spending a lot of his time doing that, and they just needed someone to represent them when we'd have monthly managers meetings so that everything would get to the... The water would get to the end of the row, if you would. They asked me to do that, and I just... Uh, That was one of the ones that I still had when I just retired uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, And then interestingly, uh, about two and a half years ago, or almost three years ago in October, I guess, Intermountain made a bunch of changes, and they came to me and asked me if I would uh, manage the Merrill Gatmeyer Family Medicine Clinic. Merrill Gatmeyer was the chairman of the board uh, that they used to play racquetball with, and now they've got a family practice residency program there uh, named after him. Uh, They said they wanted to Put his name on a building, and he said, "Well, if you're, I, I don't really want that, but if you're going to put my name on a building, let's put it on something, on a small building." So they put it on the residency program. Merrill was, like I said, the chairman of the board. He was actually in mountains, chairman of the board for a period of time. Just a, as wonderful a man as you'll find, but uh, I, I dare say I'm the only manager of that clinic that actually used to play racquetball with, with the guy who the building was named after. And so that was kind of a. a a fun route. Uh, There in that clinic they actually have 24 family practice residents, uh, people who have finished medical school eight first year, eight second year, and eight third year. They go to a three year residency program, work with some wonderful faculty members there. As I look back on my career I think of, you know, there were times when certain things were important to certain administrators and times that they weren't as important to administrators. Uh, For example, we used to be, you know, one of the first things you'd look at every month when the financials would come out is how are we doing financially? Are we doing okay? Are we bringing in enough business? So on and so forth. So we would look at the revenue to see are we doing okay there. Uh, Now, they don't even have us look at the revenue. They don't even, they see it, but but as managers, we don't see it. What we're looking at is is cost per unit of service. Uh, It used to be that if the hospital was full of patients, then that was always a good thing, because there was plenty of revenue flowing in. Now the idea is, is let's, let's reduce the hospital stays if we can. Uh, let's keep people healthy and out of the hospitals. If we can keep them out of here, then it's much easier to take care of them as, as someone outside the hospital than it is when you put them inside the hospital and, and you need specialists that can take care of them. They need a lot of doctor care, a lot of nursing care, those kinds of things. And so the incentives really, the pendulum has kind of swung the other direction now. Uh, and, and is continuing to swing uh, just the differences now now what they're really doing on our financials is they're looking at us and saying how are you doing in comparison to what you were doing the last 12 months and are you on a rolling average that is trending in the right direction per unit of service one of the reasons i've been able to stay with intermountain for as long as i have is because i could support the administration and what they're doing and recognize that they had a better vision and a better picture than I did. Did I agree with everything they did? Probably not, Uh, but could I support him in it? Yeah, I could. If I couldn't, I probably shouldn't have been working there for him, and and I think that's the one thing that's probably allowed me to continue to be there. I've learned a number of things. Uh, One of the things I think is probably most significant that I would encourage you to recognize as students is you all see things from a different prism. You see things based on your life experience. Someone else sees things based on their life experience. And those life experiences could be miles apart. And you're going to see things quite differently from that. I learned that recently, actually, in a church calling I have, where I sat in a meeting with people I just told in very high regard and was told, this is how we want you to do it. It was in my mind. It could not have been more clear. Uh, and we left there, and half of us did it one way, and another half did it completely different, uh, related to COVID. And I, I, to the point, I actually called and said, "Did I misunderstand something?" Uh, because these people that I hold in very high regard are doing it completely different than what I am. And and they said, "No, you, you understood it fine. You're doing fine, and they're doing fine as well." And so it, it, it helped me realize that you know, seeing things from a different prism doesn't mean, uh, that that I was right and they were wrong or they were right and I was wrong. It's just we're looking at it from a different lens. And and, and when you realize that, you, you, you soon realize that we all kind of see things a little differently that way. One of the great lessons I learned, we had a, a chaplain uh, come and work for the hospital. He was the first chaplain we'd ever had there. And and like I said, my my boss was the HR director and his secretary was a lady that I, we, we had a good relationship. We'd badger each other and kind of just Laugh, I have a good time. Anyway, I walked into to that office one day, into the HR office, and, and here's this gentleman I'd never seen. And she said, oh, Brent, have you met the chaplain? This is Chaplain Brown. And I looked at him and, and, and shook his hand and said, nice to, nice to have you here. And then I, I looked at her and jokingly said, chaplain, out of all the people that work in this entire facility, no one needs you more than Debbie does. Uh, and pointed to this lady, and he, and he looked at her and winked and And this is the lesson I think that I'll, I'll never forget. He said, "What Peter tells you about Paul tells you more about Peter than it does about Paul. And boy, what a what a valuable lesson. we were joking in that regard, and I'm grateful we were otherwise. he probably wouldn't have said that because he would have hurt my feelings, and he was too kind of a guy to do that. But uh, but that's that's a great lesson that I think it's very easy for us to feel like everybody knows everything. Everybody but me knows everything. I think sometimes we need to be significantly more forgiving of ourselves than we are. I remember very distinctly uh, going on a Latter-day Saint mission, uh, going into the MTC to learn Spanish. But I remember walking in there and thinking, wow, these guys that have been here a week speak Spanish, almost what I assumed to be fluently, because they were so far ahead of me. Uh, the ones that had been there a month, I, I was sure were fluent. And uh, and then I got to San Antonio, Texas, and realized that, my goodness, I don't know anything still. And these people, I thought, knew everything. But I'd been out as long as them, and I thought, that's when it kind of dawned on me, I wonder if they know as little as I know. They knew as little as I knew a month ago. Uh, and, and that's when I realized, you know, it, Life is a journey. You just keep moving forward. It doesn't matter so much how fast you're moving or how fluent you are in this or how savvy you are with that. If you're moving in the right direction, you're happy, then you need to keep going that direction. If you're unhappy, turn and go a different direction. Your happiness in life won't be based how fast you get there. It's based on am I going the right direction and am I doing the right kinds of things. I just retired a week and a half ago, so I am not. I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this or not. I. Uh, it's nice to not worry about gee, is so-and-so feeling okay, are they gonna be at work today, or is such-and-such you know, such a patient upset, or, or this or that. But, but one thing I would strongly encourage you to do, when you go out and get your job, uh, whatever that job happens to be, if they have a 401k match, get in that as quickly as you can. For Intermountain Healthcare, that match was, if you put in 5%, they would match you at 4%, which means I got an 80% return on every dollar that I put into that. And and I just retired, and, and my the retirement guy that I'm working with said, the reason you have a decent fund over here isn't because of what you did the last 10 years. It's because of what you did the first... 25 years. Over time, it continues to grow. the other thing I would encourage you to do is once you put that money in those 401ks, don't ever take it out. Don't borrow against it. You have enough to get by. You can live just as fine on 95% of your income as you can on 100% of it. The 5% is not going to make a difference, but it will make a difference if you stick it aside and start putting it in the market and getting things with that on a regular basis. Uh, The other thing I would do is once I didn't need it anymore or had my home paid off working for a company like Intermountain Healthcare, I don't think there was ever a year that you didn't get an increase in pay. Sometimes they were 1% or 2%, but there was always something. And generally, it was probably more in the neighborhood of 3%. Uh, three, three and a half. But you always got something. I would take that and stick that in the 401k. Say, okay, I don't need that. I'll just stick it in there. And I I had a friend recently tell me who retired about eight years ago. He said, uh, you know, I didn't realize that all the while I was making that money, I felt like I had to make enough money that I could stick it aside so that I could retire. But he says, once you retire, you're not having to put money aside so you can save it in your second retirement because you've got You've got sufficient. A gentleman that I think the world of, uh, Von J. Featherstone, taught us when I was a missionary, he says, Those who understand interest collect it, those who don't it. I I would just encourage you to to get in whatever you can in terms of the matching. Another thing that's interesting, with Intermountain Healthcare, for a long time, they had a pension, a very nice pension. They stopped that about a little over a year ago. And what they do now is they contribute more to your 401k than they used to. And the reason they did that is they said, we lose a lot of employees because they can make 15 cents more an hour going somewhere else or a quarter more an hour. And they don't look at that pension that Intermountain was kicking in, uh, which at the time was 12% for the first uh, 10 years, 14% for the next 10 years, and then 16% for any time after that. Meaning, you know, whatever you made, they will throw an extra 16% into your pension bucket that you'll get when you retire. They've changed that now to where it's simply an add to your 401k. And the reason for that is simply they found that people were, were young enough and they weren't planning on sticking around long enough that the extra quarter an hour meant more to them than maybe an extra $0.50 an hour that's going into a pension. So another reason I looked at retiring, I I just turned 62. Uh, I was fishing with my brother and his boys up in Alaska last year. And he asked me, he said, how's work? And I said, it's good. And he said, you don't say that with a lot of enthusiasm. I said, no, it's fine. And he said, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is it? I said, it's probably a 7. He said, what would you say this is, being here in Alaska? And I said, this is probably a 12 up here. And he, he looked at me and he said, so why are you still there? And, and I got to thinking, you know, I, I probably, that's worth considering. And another thing I thought about is I thought, someone with more passion, someone with more understanding, uh, someone that's more willing to maybe jump through all the right hoops uh, should, should do this. My mother taught us when we were kids to take your date home while she's still having a good time. And I wanted to leave while I was still having a good time. I didn't want to leave upset. I didn't want to leave because I didn't want them thinking, "Man, is Edgington ever going to get out of here?" I, I don't think they thought that, but but I wanted to leave on my terms when I uh, and, and I did, and and I'm happy about it. I, uh, you know, it's it's nice to to be in the situation I'm in. Keep in mind that it comes much faster than you realize. I, I would say include your family. Look at what's most important to you and say you know does this accomplish this if I'm miserable but I'm making a lot of money is that worth it it may be to you it wasn't to me and so it becomes a matter of simply looking at it and saying you know what's most important to me how can I be the happiest and then figuring it out from there one thing I would suggest that you recognize is in today's world uh, it's highly unlikely that someone will stay with the same company for 36 years Uh, my understanding is in a lot of these technological companies they kind of bring you in and they mine your brain if they would and pull out all the things they can and after after maybe four or five or even less years they say, Okay, you know, now we've got from you what we want. Now you go somewhere else and we'll find something different. And so there's lots of lots of roads that get to where you want to be. But I would encourage you to make sure that you're you're happy and focused on the things that bring you lasting happiness, not just in the moment. And it doesn't matter how much you make, if you're not happy, it's not worth it. If you are happy, it doesn't matter how little you make. I I had a brother recently who was telling me about a, uh, a gentleman he was talking to years ago that retired from, he was a lineman for a power company, and he said this guy was over the moon happy about the fact that he was going to get like $1,400 a year the rest of his life to survive on, uh, plus a Social Security that was coming, but he was just over the moon ecstatic about this. and. And he told my brother, he says, on top of that, I've got like $2,600 set aside. And he was just over the moon happy with this. And my brother thought, I don't know that that gets you very far. (laughs) He didn't say that to him, but he, he said, about two weeks later, I was talking to a gentleman that had retired from a very highly successful job and was concerned as could be over the fact that He was retiring, and he was only going to get about $7,000 a month, plus his Social Security. And he only had about a half a million dollars sitting in the bank, and he wasn't sure how he was going to survive. And he said the contrast between those two is the one that was so happy was the one that had so little. And the one that was so concerned was the one that seemingly had many times what the other gentleman did. And so it's a state of mind. It's how you decide you're going to be. Uh, live within your means, uh, do what you enjoy, and I love those you're around. I, lo- I love golf, but but it, but it's not the golf that I love. It's the associations that you develop with the people you're playing golf with. That's what's great about golf. Uh, you know, I I, I I carry about a seven handicap. Uh, if I, you know, if I, I I never this is maybe a good indication. I never go play golf by myself. That's not what it's about for me. It's about being with people you care about. And uh, and I was very fortunate. I had three dear friends that we played, probably more golf than we should have, uh, but it was awesome. And one of them up and passed away on us about five years ago. The golf has never been quite the same, uh, but boy, did we have a good 20 years we played we played whenever we could. Uh, We'd go all over the place and play, and it was awesome. But it was really about the associations and the games and the camaraderie, that sort of thing. You know, that and it's good exercise to be out. And we were all similar to each other in terms of how we played and that sort of thing. And so there were, you know, we'd play team games and probably do some more traveling, my wife and I and our children. I've not met anyone that says, gee, I wished I'd worked two more years. Uh, But I met plenty of people that have said, gee, I, I wished I had left a few years earlier. (laughs) And so that's one of the reasons I thought, you know, you can, why not? And so I'm giving it a shot, and and I think we'll be fine. My my father was a psychologist by trade, but he was a genius by what he had us doing. He had five boys and a girl, four boys, then a girl, and then a, a fifth boy. If we weren't involved in athletic practices, that sort of stuff, then he had us working. When we turned eight years old, we delivered newspapers. Uh, at six o'clock in the morning to the entire town Now the town's only 3,000 people and we only only about 80 of them ever took the papers so we each had about 20 people we would have to take the papers to but we'd go to the up to the local bar to pick up the papers and, and the bar was closed of course at 6 a.m but that's where they dropped the papers off but but being around bottles of alcohol never in a thousand years will that appeal to me because it's just so repulsive from when I was eight, 10. 12 years old. I still remember uh, when they quit taking the Desert News and Salt Lake Tribune up to Idaho. I was at scout camp and uh, I was about 14 and I still remember the excitement when they told me that paper was no longer coming. At that point my dad got me a job somehow cleaning a local bank and so I'd have to go clean the bank every night. He taught us how to work, and, and, and not just taught us how. He made sure that we were working, and I think that's probably depressed the idea that an education's gonna matter to you. If you move sprinkler pipe in Idaho, you, you don't wanna do that for very long. Uh, you make about a dime a pipe. You know, if you work your guts out, you could make maybe six bucks an hour. Uh, it was it was tough work, though, uh, through hay and potatoes and grain, and that sort of thing. and But it was, it was, it was a good opportunity, uh, but you learned how to work. But my father also, being a psychologist, uh, he, he would buy old homes and repair them, and fix them up, and then he would rent them. We uh, grew up just having to fix all, you'd have to go in and do all these repairs, and so I think he was teaching us how to do that stuff. I think maybe more, more important than teaching us how to do that stuff is teaching us the importance of getting an education so you don't have to do that stuff. Uh, I almost feel bad now when my wife calls a painter, because I can paint. I'm very confident I can paint as well as any of those guys we're hiring. But I don't mind paying <laughs> them to do that. Uh, in fact, last time we had a, someone come paint, my wife said, come on, we're headed up to Park City and taking the kids so that we're just out of their way. And uh, and it was great. You come back and the house smells like new paint, and, and I didn't have to touch any of it. Uh, but my father, he he would... He bought an insulation blower that we'd get up in the attics and blow insulation. And up in St. Anthony, Idaho, where it was very common, you'd get to 20, 30 below on a regular basis. In fact, they'd cancel school if the temperature got below 30 below. But if it was higher than that, then they'd heat the schools. But if it was, if it got that low, they would they would cancel school and they'd call it an act of God. And so we didn't have to make it up. So that was awesome as well. Uh, but there was always a couple weeks a year that we were out of school because either it was too cold or if it snowed and the wind blew at all then they closed the schools uh, but my father taught us to work and if we weren't if we weren't out doing something extracurricular school wise then we were probably working uh, i remember very vividly that he would The time we got home on Friday night was inversely related to the time we got up and went to work on Saturday morning. If we got home at 1 or 2 in the morning, which is not uncommon in Idaho because if you were taking someone somewhere, you'd probably have to drive an hour to get to her, and then you'd come back to the dance, and then after it was over, you'd take her home and so on. Anyway, it was not uncommon that we'd drag in at 1 or 2 in the morning because, not because you were out messing around. You just, to get to where you were going, you had to do that. But it would if we got home at t- 1 or 2 in the morning, we were up at 6 going to work. If we got home at 11, uh, we may not go to work till 8 that next morning. And then we'd go to work for a while, and, and we'd come home and watch a ball game uh, or do that while we had lunch and, and then go back to work some more. So, and, and, and my father probably, he had some good opportunities where he could have gone and probably made significantly more money than he did but he recognized that he was raising children he wasn't wasn't trying to see how much can i make and i think that's where his psychology background really was beneficial to all of us two of my brothers are now psychologists and uh, and we realized the importance in life is not how much you have it's it, it, it's it's who you who you have and the relationships you have not how much do you have in the bank or how much who's got the nicest this or the nicest that i remember buying A uh, ring when I was a kid from the local jewelry store for three dollars and that was like a month's worth of paper route. Doing the papers was one thing. Delivering the papers was one thing. That wasn't bad. The collecting was the bad part. You'd have to go collect from these people. Uh, Most of them were always very good and and, but you'd have to go every month and they'd give you the three bucks for the newspaper for the month Uh, and sometimes they'd throw in an extra 50 cents or an extra dollar. Uh, but in large part, it was, it was, you were just collecting for it. And I still remember, I still remember, I almost feel badly about this. I remember the gentleman that I could never get to pay me. And, and, and three bucks was kind of like, that's all I made in a month. And so if he didn't, if he didn't pay me, then I didn't get, I didn't make anything that month. He actually, well, I'm not going to say that because (laughs) he, uh, he actually died, uh, when I was about 17 from a natural disaster back that way. And I, I still remember feeling bad that I didn't feel more bad that he'd done that. But he just, he, he didn't ever have any money when I stopped. Or he couldn't find his checkbook or that sort of thing. And, uh, but those were lessons that as kids, you learn very well. But I remember buying a ring and, uh, and I couldn't, I, I, I bought it. And I don't know why a ring mattered to me then, but I lost it when I was out playing basketball in the first day or two. And I was just heart sick. And I, I went down into my room and I prayed. I said, Heavenly Father, I want to find this ring. And somehow I got up from that and walked over about a block and a half uh, to an outside a basketball court in someone's driveway uh, that we'd been at the day before. And I'll be darned if the ring wasn't sitting right there. I still remember that was the first time I said, OK, this stuff really works. <laughs> And so it was kind of kind of fun. But yeah, collecting the newspaper money was, was more challenge, far more challenging than, uh, than doing it. But we had to do that. We had to pay, you know. We'd get the bill for the papers and we'd have to send it. We'd have to pay for the papers. And so, yeah, I, I still remember the Mr. Garrett. Uh, he was a high school biology teacher. And he, he, uh, he was a, his wife had passed away. He was a single gentleman. But we'd also mow his lawn. And, uh, and, and and back then you, you edged the lawn too, but you edged it with little hand clippers. And so you'd get down on your hands and knees and go around and clip the edges. And, uh, but I remember every Christmas he'd always, he'd give us a $5 tip, plus he'd give us a box of cherry cordials, our very own box. So you got like 16 of your own chocolates. And, and I think we, we saved them some of They probably weren't any good. <laughs> but they were your own. I am Doug Gardner, and this has been the People in Their Work podcast. Music by Christopher Weiss. Images are from the UVU Roots of Knowledge stained glass exhibit by Holdman Studios.